You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, so this is week two of the ridiculously titled Hot Theology Summer. Last week we talked about Pentecost, a little bit about the Holy Spirit, a little bit about the Christian life. This week we're going to talk about the Trinity, it being Trinity Sunday, this is especially appropriate. It's also just appropriate to talk about the Trinity. Uh, it's probably not a good idea to have a Trinity Sunday, uh, is what scholars say, because we should be talking about the Trinity all the time, right? Because the, the Trinity is God. And sometimes when we make it a special day and something that people feel like they have to explain in 12 minutes, um, it's, it's, it's very intimidating. It's intimidating for me. Um, but yeah, like if, if you notice in our prayers, right, they're oftentimes addressed to Almighty God, they're addressed to the Father, but it's through the Son and the Spirit. In every single one of these prayers we're doing in the liturgy, we are praying, you know, when I grew up, I, I used to pray, Dear Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some people pray to the Holy Spirit, there's nothing wrong with that. In the scriptures, oftentimes, it's, it's directed right to the Father. Think of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. But there's always this notion, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're always, especially in our liturgy prayers, where we're being very precise and careful. It's always the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what is the logic of the Trinity? It might seem to you this doesn't make any sense. You probably heard it said before, three in one, one in three. Someone didn't know arithmetic. Um, really, even what I'm here today essentially to tell you is that a lot of Trinity talk is metaphorical. So when we talk about three, we're, 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 it's all a metaphor because we are monotheists, just like Jews, just like uh, Muslims. We are monotheists. We believe in the one God. Think of the Old Testament, the Shema, the people of Israel would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the early Christians were at pains to say that we, are, we don't believe in three gods, we're not polytheists, we believe in the one God. Though mysteriously, the mystery that had been held for so long has now been revealed. God is in three persons. So what is the, the logic of the Trinity? And really before I get into this, I, guys who are so much smarter than me, there's a guy named Philip Carey, who is a professor in Philadelphia, who has these, have you, do you guys remember the great courses? Uh, and some of the, like, you know, the idea is you, you find like the best professor in the nation at calculus and he'd teach calculus or the best uh, philosopher and she would teach, you know, on Kant or something like that. Philip Carey has these classes on uh, the history of Christian doctrine, Augustine and Luther that are better than any classes I took in undergrad or in grad school. So shout out to Philip Carey. A decent amount of what I have here is essentially stolen from him. Another person who's great is a guy named Benjamin Myers. He's an Australian theologian. He has a little book on the Apostles' Creed, um, and it's, it's done in a very warm, accessible way, but it really kind of gets at the truths of our faith. So Benjamin Myers and Philip Carey go to them. Philip Carey, who is a philosopher, talks about the logic of the Trinity, and I think this is helpful just because, yeah, like, I mean, how do you talk about the Trinity to a friend of yours who's just like, man, one in three, three in one? Again, we're talking in metaphors when we talk about the three. But way back in the day, Augustine of Hippo, we're talking the fourth century AD, 
uh, North African theologian. He said this, and for you, man, I'm going to butcher this word, logisticians in the room, logisticians. Uh, you can see if this checks out. But he talks about the Trinity using seven statements. He says, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There is one God. See how that checks out? If you're, if you're into kind of logic, the Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, Father is not the Son, Son is not the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is not the Father, there is one God. There is, if I were if on it, I would show you the, the famous diagram of, you know, the Father is not the Son, is not, and then the circle. But it's, it's helpful, but it's also kind of not. Uh, the reason why it's not is because sometimes we get those images in our minds and like the analogies that are no good for the, the, for the Trinity, we start to think uh, like, oh yeah, like this is as simple as this. Now, the, so let's get beyond the logic, and if you have any questions or comments on that, you, you want to go against Augustine or whatever you can. Um, but that has checked out. So obviously the Trinity is not a name. We don't find the word Trinity in the scriptures, though we see the, the trajectory toward what the church came up with the Trinity all over the place, because we see... Uh, you know, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talk, we see in John especially, Jesus is the, you know, the, the, the Word made flesh. Uh, in Hebrews, right, the exact imprint, the icon of the Father. Uh, the earliest Christians worshipped the Son. And these are Jews, right? You can't worship a created being. This is Judaism. The earliest Christians, again, these, these are our forebears. So there's a problem that occurs among the thinking people that are, all right, well, if we're worshiping the Son, and then we find ourselves also worshiping the Spirit, Jesus' the Spirit who was given to us, how do we make sense of this? So it was really the, the, the Trinity, the genealogy of the Trinity is really from the ground up rather than this like, all right, well, here's the philosophy behind something going down or, or here's like top down. Uh, you, you sometimes hear the emperor said, God is triune, and so then everyone else did. But really, with, in the history of Christian theology, it really came from the people up. It came from, all right, well, how can we pray to Jesus? How do we call Jesus Lord? Uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's what's known as the Tetragrammaton, which is the word for God that only the high priest can say once a year in the Holy of Holies. That word, L-O-R-D, is, is, is used so that we don't have to say the name. And when you hear the name was given to him that is above every name, that's that name. That's where the earliest Christians are very bold. Uh, when you hear somebody say to you, well, you know, Jesus doesn't claim to be God or whatever. Uh, I mean, well, it's a, it's a very similar argument to like, oh, well, the Trinity isn't found anywhere in the scriptures, that word anyway. Well, I mean, it doesn't really, that's unhelpful. John says, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, we also see, and Paul makes it even more explicit. And Paul's letters come to us even before the gospels. and. Paul says, he quotes this hymn that predates him, that 
Jesus was given the name above every other name. And if you're Jewish, you know that that is the Tetragrammaton. That's that word we don't use. That is why, even more than saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, Jesus is Lord is saying something very bold. Uh, this is essentially why Jews and the earliest Christians, they were together for a little while in the synagogues, and then things broke apart because there, there was a disagreement here. So again, from the ground up, we're praying to Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. We know Jesus has been given the name above every name. We're praying to him and then with the Holy Spirit. And so to make sense of this, the Trinity is essentially come up with, um, or that term. So we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit language in the scriptures. We also see this in the creeds that we say every single week, as you know. And um, yes, when, when, when you and I are baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the, the, the creed associated with baptism is the Apostles' Creed. I do want to say, right from the outset, the Trinity is, on some level, it's beyond our understanding. So I don't want to like, explain it in such a way where it's like, well, here it is, and there's no more, and there, there isn't a attention. No, there is. There's this, uh, the analogy that somebody I know would use, uh, which again, was helpful. Think of like Euclidean mathematics. Um, think of a, uh, a cube, think of a hypercube, the, 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 the theoretical construct if there are four dimensions. When uh, Carl Sagan is actually really helpful for us here. Uh, maybe you're like, oh, Carl Sagan, that guy was, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, but he's actually pretty helpful for us in that, you know, this like three-dimensional thinking that we all have, it's, you know, it's, it, it's naive in a sense because it's all we humans can come up with, even though we can imagine more. And uh, I mean, honestly, theories of like the multiverse and all this, this really complicates some of our understanding. Sorry, I'm still very much up here. Um, <laughs> but when we're talking about the Trinity, we're, we're kind of talking about something like that. So again, I don't want to keep it complicated for too long. Um, but really what this arose out of was, so in the third century, um, I believe it's third century, uh, there's a guy named Arius. He's a Christian, and he goes around, he comes up with, all right, the Trinity's complicated. How do we understand it? He says about Jesus, the Son, there was when he was not. Does that make sense? He doesn't even say there was a time when he was not, because he wants to, you know, how time works. Uh, there was when Jesus was not. And what this means is that Jesus is not equal to the Father. Jesus may be kind of a demigod of sorts, an intermediary, but Jesus is not equal to the Father. People of his day freaked out about this, because, uh, oh, hold up, if we're praying to someone who is not equal with the Father, then we're doing something wrong. Um, and so you've probably heard of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed that we say every week is a product of the Council of Nicaea and the Cons uh, Council of Constantinople. And this is where the church says, no Arius, Jesus is equal with the Father. There, there was never when he was not. And you can see where in the Gospel of John, right, and um, the, the pre-existent Logos or Son. So, the Baptist questions, though, uh, are you know, 
One, the way they get to this is, are we worshiping something who is not fully God? And two, why, were, why are we being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit if the Son and, by extension, the Spirit are less, lesser, lesser gods, intermediaries, whatever. Um, so really, in a nutshell, that's the, why we say the creed. Um, this is a creed that Arius couldn't sign. And some of the things that we say in it, begotten, not made, these are terms that are used in direct contrast to Arius. So if you don't understand them at times, or like, you're like, oh, what is the metaphysics behind all this? It, it really is, it's dealing with an issue of its time, but this creeps up all the time. If you've ever dealt with a Jehovah's Witness who's come to your door, uh, one of the first things they're going to say is, well, you know, Jesus isn't fully God. Jesus isn't the same as God. So, all right, I was going to say more about the Nicene Creed, but let's get to where this, the rubber hits the road. Um, yeah, I don't really need to talk about eternally begotten. So why does this all matter? This, this all seems like really heady stuff uh, and, and an abstraction. Uh, and a lot of times when people tell me ideas matter, I often roll my eyes because I'm like, all right, you're going to talk about the most abstract <laughs> and unrelated to life kind of thing. Uh, sure, the mechanics of how we make sense of the Trinity can be complicated. Just like, you know, anything you study can get very complicated. But why is the Trinity important? Trinity is important because it lets us know that God looks like Jesus. What we see in Jesus is God. There's not this hidden God behind Jesus, who is unlike Jesus. Um, also, if Jesus is merely an intermediary, kind of like, you know, the best angel, so to speak, well then how does this best angel's sacrifice work out for you and me? Again, this is a time in the church before they've really worked out the atonement. Um, the atonement is being worked out, and people have theories on it, and not just theories, but how it affects their lives. But really, the atonement is being worked out all the way through the Reformation. Like, how, what does Jesus' death mean? It's as if, it's not that the early church people didn't get it, this question, but the pressing questions of their day is, who is Jesus? Is he fully God? Is he not? When that question gets answered, other questions arise. Uh, and again, not that they were, but the focus of the church later on became, what does Jesus' death mean? Um, and why the Trinity matters in a way that it probably wasn't in their minds at the time is, you know, for the sacrifice of God to matter for you, for, of Jesus, to matter for you and me, if, if he's not fully God, if, if God has not taken off flesh, if God has not become one of us, um, well, then it, it sounds like we just have a very heroic angel who we need to emulate. The atonement is merely emulate Jesus and you'll live, and you'll resurrect. Um, but as you guys at this church are very big emphasizers of, the atonement is much more than exemplary behavior. It's a sacrifice for sins. It's a substitution on our behalf. This is the good news, right, that we can rest in, that we're good with God. If this was done by someone not fully God, then, um, and I, I don't really love this language so much, but some people do, how would this kind of appease God's justice, so to speak, to put it in a very non-personal way? Or um, uh, how is the wrath of God satisfied, so to speak? 
Um, so again, the reason why I think ideas matter, I don't know if any of you are watching the Apple TV Plus show Physical. Rose Byrne is, uh, you guys know Rose Byrne, you probably do, she's in a lot of stuff, but uh, some of you in this room probably won't like it, but it's, it's about essentially this woman who, it's in the 80s, it's when aerobics is really a big thing, the aerobics and the leotards and all that. And in the show, you have her inner monologue and how she presents herself to the world. And that's where it gets really interesting because you hear her thoughts, you hear what's really going on, and then you hear like the very nice way, even though like, you know, she's saying like, screw that guy. And then like, oh, you're so wonderful, come on over. Uh, uh, so it's worth watching if you're into that kind of thing. But where I think it relates here is she, like a lot of people, and maybe especially women, maybe especially at that time, but I'd say even now, uh, probably because of pressures put on women, she knows that in order to matter, she's got to look great. In order to matter, she's got to look great. She's got this idea, it's in her head, but it's, it's not even just like this conscious thing, it's like in her bones, right? This idea, if I look great, I matter. So the whole time in her inner dialogue, she is just insults, nitpicking of her own body, of her appearance, and it's really only meant to be about her, but then it, of course it spills out into everyone around her because the people around her end up becoming this extension of herself. And, uh, and essentially, I don't want to give away the show, but she loses friends, she loses her marriage. She, this thing that was supposed to help her, and, and, and she did, like this negative self-talk got her to work out, uh, got her to be in shape, but she also developed an eating disorder she also, she was bulimic. She had essentially lost, loses everyone around her. So what was supposed to make her healthy, ultimately, I mean, I guess it gets her appearance the way she wanted it to, but she kind of loses everything else. Ultimately, there's unhealth. The reason I bring up this metaphor is because while I do think what I said the other week in the sermon that, you know, ultimately the change agent for humanity is our loves, is our heart. Nevertheless, ideas do matter. Uh, and sure, the abstractions matter. We need the philosophers, we, you know, the things we roll our eyes at. But here's where it hits the road. It's the Trinity shows us that God is love, mercy, and healing. Love, mercy, and healing. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love, mercy, and healing. There's nothing behind that. Uh, that negates that. This is the real thing. This idea, God is love, mercy, healing. I mean, you can do more justice. Uh, but God being those things, us having that idea in our minds, and even more importantly, hopefully, it goes into our hearts, into our being. This is the kind of idea that God willing doesn't result in unhealthy habits or pushing people away, or you fill in the blank. This idea is important, that when we see Jesus, we see the imprint of the Father. We see what the Holy Spirit's on about. Again, the Holy Spirit is not on about something completely different than the Son. 
There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one will in that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that will, I'm boiling it down to mercy, love, and healing. This is, again, something that's great to have in our minds. Hopefully, with preaching, week in, week out, it'll sink into our souls. Um, and it's also part of why I'm saying that you know, having a Trinity Sunday might not be the most helpful. Trinity Sunday is every Sunday. Um, but why don't we, like, I, I've got a few more things I could say, but any, any, maybe any questions you have about the Trinity, could be any comments about what I've said, but, um, and yeah, maybe it's a really tough one. So and I, I'll have to be like, maybe talk to someone else, but yeah. Or, or what have you heard about the Trinity that's either been unhelpful or helpful? Love to turn this into a little bit of a back and forth, but maybe you don't think about the Trinity much at all, and that's okay. <laughs> I mean, is, is it okay? But I'm just kidding. Yeah. Oh no! no they, the issue. I mean, that's, yeah. is that <coughs> no, I mean, oh, Muslims explicitly think that we worship three gods, yeah. and then it gets confusing because <laughs> in the Quran, like, the it talks about how Mary is kind of in that as well. But I mean, you can understand how that misunderstanding would come about, right? The veneration of the Blessed Mother. You're like, oh, okay, well, like, oh, they're worshiping her too. Um, but no, no, there's there's never been reckoned. Like, yeah, and I probably should have said this at the beginning. One of the things that makes Christianity distinct from all world religions is the Trinity. Uh, yeah. Jews and Muslims have not come around on that. Uh, I just didn't know if there was a difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. That superseded that. No, in fact, the, I mean, this is probably too simplistic, but some scholars say that Islam is essentially formed out of like, okay, we can't make sense of the Trinity. There is one God, and here's how we understand it. Uh, Jesus is a messenger, an intermediary, a, a, a prophet like uh, Muhammad. Um, yeah, I mean that's why I, you know, I gave you the thing that you probably didn't care about at the beginning, uh, just like an armor in your pocket. Like when people say it's illogical, well, uh, Augustine wrote this 1,600 years ago, and people are still following it, uh, and no one's. It's not like, oh, here's why that's definitely false. Um, but I also wanted to end it with this whole like. Because really, it is from the ground up, what Paul's all would like to say, right? Theology is from the ground up. Um, we get uncomfortable because this is talk of experience, but it really was like the experience of worshiping Jesus is what led us to the Christians to be like, okay, well, wait, why are we doing this again? Uh, if we're worshiping an intermediary, again, we're all Jews. We were, we were breaking the first commandment. Um, and so this ends up getting worked out through what started as the experience of prayer and, I mean, the earliest experience of relationship with Christ. And then gets, by extension, the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Uh, yeah. We could talk more, we talked more about the Holy Spirit last week. So if I'm giving him short shrift, it's because we talked more about it last week. But. Are there any illustrations you prefer? I'm thinking uh, we taught first grade a few weeks yeah, ago that's tough. we were trying to teach about the Trinity and they used this Apple yeah, illusion. I, I didn't think it was that great. Yeah, it's. I mean, again, I, I don't want to be too harsh because it's. It's one for kids. Yeah. Yeah, I remember doing it with my 
actual, ha- I have that yeah. as a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I don't want to be too, I'm not, a, and again, I, I love theology, I'm not a theology policeman. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that metaphor, that illustration can be helpful for an aspect of the Trinity, but you just have to say, like, this is not the Trinity. Uh, some people would say they're ultimately unhelpful and we should cast them all out, but, uh, but yeah, if you're trying to get a grasp of the Trinity, same, similar thing, right? Uh, water, ice, vapor. The problem is, is that that means that that's an old heresy called modalism. Sorry for being very technical, but it's like actually God. There, like again, three is a metaphor, but the threeness is totally done away with. Uh, and maybe the way to talk, who is Jesus praying to when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? If if uh, if God only takes on modes of being, does that make sense? I feel like that still wasn't very clear. Um, well, I guess what you're saying is all the illustrations can lead to sort of a so another heresy view if you yeah. take them too far. Like they're totally very limited in their utility. Yeah, yeah. So they're limited in their utility, but I also don't want like I mean I, I don't know about you guys, but I had a posture of fear of getting things wrong growing up, and I don't think that that's helpful either. I mean, we're definitely the religion of you know do not be afraid. Whenever the angel comes, right, the first words. Yeah. I think that's kind of a, uh, and we all have, we're all slightly heretical. So now again, that's not me saying, oh, well then let's not worship the Trinity. Let's, let's just worship Jesus. Forget the Father, Spirit. No one's actually doing that, but uh, I don't think any of you guys are tempted to become Jehovah's Witnesses. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there is also a place for the, the, the technical understanding and it might not be the worst thing to have in your back pocket because some people, I mean, people still say this, like, well, the Trinity doesn't make any sense. Uh, and we do say there's a mystery here, but we're, we're trying to say is that it's not illogical. It's not something that we're going to exhaust, but there is, you know, I, I hate this because I'm a pretty rational person. I, there is a, a, a point where words are, don't help anymore and we have to embrace the mystery. But I don't want to start there too quickly. Uh, kind of like a feedism of like, ah, oh, we can't know anything. Um, so I don't know. anybody, I thought I saw another hand. Um, and there was something that came up. Like another illustration I want to use, and maybe this is helpful, maybe not, but like, you all, have you guys all seen Good Will Hunting? That movie? If you haven't, great movie from the 90s, Matt Damon, Robin Williams, and um, let me remember the story to make sure I get this right. But Matt Damon is this kind of uh, self-made genius, self-taught genius. Um, and he is a janitor at MIT. So he obviously likes being around smart people, but he's never gone to school. And this professor writes up this equation that you know, the best students in the school can try to figure out. And nobody can, but you know, this, this janitor does. And, uh, they see the equation solved. and. Nobody knows who did it. They find out it's, it's, it's Matt Damon's character. And Matt Damon's character is troubled. He, that's all I want to say so far. He's troubled. He ends up, essentially the day they find out, or around the time they find out that he solved this problem, he gets into a fight with some friends. A police officer comes to split him up, and he punches the police officer. He's in jail. So this professor is like, all right, I'll look after him. Uh, if you're if you're if you give him leniency, he has to meet with a psychologist, and he'll study right under me. The psychologist is the Robin Williams character. 
the whole movie, they're you know trying to work on him. He's a piece of work. Uh, essentially, by the end, with a lot of work being done, there's this moment where you figure out that this he'd been abused as a kid, and by extension, again, something that's in his head, but but more in his bones than in his head. But we find out that this is essentially the cause of what's running his life and ruining his life, and why he's sabotaging relationships and going to jail, et cetera. And in the, the moment that gives me boost, goosebumps every time, Robin Williams' character says to him, it's not your fault. And then he's like, yeah, yeah. And then he just he says it over and over again. And Matt Damon's character essentially wants to like fight him because he's touching, he's hitting on the bruise. And then he breaks down. And the reason I think I'm saying this and why it may be connected to what we're talking about, maybe not, is, again, the idea that it's my fault, the idea, whether, again, your head, your bones, the idea that I need to look great in order to matter is not only, it's cruel. It, it's, it's, these ideas really do have consequences, real life consequences. And so, Really, the reason why the church emphasizes the Trinity is not to be kind of pie in the sky or not to, whatever, um, be super cerebral or whatever. It's to show you that God is good and God's for you. And if only we could get that in our bones, that God is love, mercy, and healing. Um, Again, that knowledge alone is not going to make you that person. But the third member of the Trinity, the Spirit, is doing this in us, and it will be enacted. Um, cruel ideas about God, and actually Fitzsimmons Allison, who was related to this church through Paul Zoll and others, he wrote a book called The Cruelty of Heresy, really getting at, like, okay, a lot of times when we talk about heresy, it's like feels like it's splitting hairs and, like, but he's saying it's, it's important for us to have classes like these, uh, have classes like Mark Ginolette's, et cetera, because bad ideas about God are cruel for you and cruel for your neighbor. So I feel like that's all I really wanted to say, but does anyone else have any kind of comments, questions? If, if you really want to dive deep, there's no way we would do this in one class, but Philip Carey and Benjamin Myers, uh, there are plenty of others, but these, these two are very accessible. Um, if you want to get something, if you want to dig deep, <laughs> and uh, I, now dig deep does not mean better, it just means like get very technical, there are some other people, but Ben Myers, Philip Carey, existentially satisfying too. So, You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.